you got to be authentic. You got to know who you are, and you got to you really got to be true to yourself. You really can't be something that you're not because it's it's not it's not going to be sustainable. Welcome to Find Your Yellow Tux. I'm Jesse Cole, a baseball team owner turned showman, turning my back on the status quo. This is the show for people creating their own path. It's showtime. All right, we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, Tim Leary. Tim, you've been a stand-up comedian all over the country. You've done improv. You've been a national syndicated radio host. Now you've won every award there is. Best on-air personality, personality of the year. Wow, and I sound like I've done a lot. You've done a few <laughs> things, at least according to your page you have. Right. Um, and I, I think also you have the best mohawk on air now. Tonight you're wearing your bananas hat. We appreciate bananas it. bananas hat on. Um, but I want to go back to kind of the roots where you started because uh, an extensive background in improv and comedy. Obviously now you've become this well-known radio host. But you know, tell me how it started, how you got into comedy, going around the country, and really how that set up the brand for yourself. Uh, well, years ago in, in, in college, um, I was with the, I was in a theater group and, you know, we did. And where was this? This was in, uh, just south of Boston, a place called Milton, Massachusetts, yep. um, at a uh, college called Curry. And that's actually the name of it. Um, and I was doing theater productions in the whole nine yards, but there was this one night that they asked, Hey, do you want to do, they asked me if I wanted to open for the stand up comedian that was coming in. And I was like, yeah, that'd be kind of different. And you must've been nervous. Oh God, I was scared. T- I was terrified, <laughs> yeah. terrified. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had to come up with like five to seven minutes of material in front of probably two to 300 people at that time. And you're in college. And I'm in college. Yeah. And these are my classmates too. So it's not like I, I, you know, if I bomb, I'll never see you again. I, I'm, I'll bomb in front of you and then I'll see you in class. This could have gone terribly bad. Horribly yeah, wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I remember that day I was driving around wondering what I was going to say. And I had gotten pulled over and got a speeding ticket for doing like twice the speed limit and I, it was for $250 and the guy you know, wiped you out it wiped me out but it made for a, the way it happened it made for a great story and I, I had a successful set so I kept doing it and doing it how did you come up with the material? you, you just if I honestly if I think it's funny I, I'll try it I mean there there are there are nights out on the road and in the clubs and stuff. You're like, yeah, I think this is the greatest joke on earth. And, and you get up there and you try it and it just goes over like a complete duck fart. And you're just like, oh. Now, did you practice any of this? The first time going on stage, which for people, you know, speaking is one of the biggest fears. And I can't imagine trying to make people laugh right. as your job. Did you try any of the material out with anybody or did you just go on stage and say, I'm doing it? I can't even tell you how long I stood in front of a mirror and, <laughs> and, and, and practice this over and over five to seven minutes oh yeah yeah i mean over and over and yeah. over and you know as you know as as i got on as a writer and, and as a comedian you know i i would figure out how i would do this if i if i had new material i would make sure it's between two really solid pieces that i've had uh, in my act for a while so that way i can introduce it on a high note yeah if it, and if, it, if it doesn't if it's not good enough i can get right back to another so i don't lose. you pick these things up as you go along I mean, and it, and it just becomes a matter of, of time on stage. I you get, mean, it's an experience. So, but you walk off that stage that first time. You're in college, performing in front of all your classmates, a couple hundred people. What was your feeling when you walked off stage? And, you know, did you know, hey, I want to do more of this? Oh, yeah. It's, it's addictive from, from, the, from the first minute. But there had to be some jokes that people just looked at you and there was dead silence that first night. You couldn't have nailed everyone. No, actually, I didn't nail that. Um, I, I, it was this. It was like the second or third time where I started, like you know, and that's when you're like, "I'm invincible! I'm the god of comedy!" And then you go out and you throw up your first joke that fails, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" And then the realization hits you as to you, it's you, a microphone, and three hundred people. Yeah, that's it. And you're in trouble. That and then all of a sudden, you it, it's like this realization of. Oh my God, there's nobody behind me. <laughs> I'm still standing here and you're staring at me. And, and those nights happen. I mean, even, you know, even as a, as a veteran of stand up comedy for, I don't even know how 20 some odd years, yeah. I'll still get out there, you know, every now and then and, and throw up a, a joke that, but you can call yourself on it. Now I have the experience on stage. You go, well, that worked, didn't it? You know, you can. You so can as bad as the joke is, you can actually make it funny by rebounding on your response. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you're starting off and you have that first night where, you know, a joke fails or the entire. I mean, I've I've been out there where the entire set has failed. Um, I I played Catch a Rising Star in Reno one night, uh, and they loved bringing me in for a, a 
a week called Street Vibrations, which is yeah. like the third largest motorcycle convention, uh, you know, behind Sturgis. So this is who you're performing to? I'm performing for for biker gangs. I mean, you're talking the henchmen, the Mongols. I mean, they are all in front so of me. So a tough audience. So why'd you fail? So, well, wait a second. Well, this is the best one. Now, between, and I used to, I used to feature because I had to do the morning show the next day. Yeah. So the MC would get up there and do stuff, and then I would go up there. Now, bet- this particular night, between me and the headliner, there was a college kid who won this contest, and the prize was you could do five minutes on stage. Now, why they chose Street Vibrations for this poor kid, I have no idea. Yeah. So, you know, he's asking us questions, and I'm dispensing these pearls of wisdom. This is comedy, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, just wait here. I'll be back. I have to go make with the yuck yucks. And I got up there, and... I don't know what it was for for whatever reason I could not sell a joke to this audience. I couldn't I tried improvising, I tried ripping on myself, ripping on the audience, which by the way don't do that in front of biker gangs. <laughs> uh, I tried just making stuff up, making stuff up. I, I just couldn't do it. So finally, you know, my 40 minutes ends and they, we they do the they do the you're released now smattering of applause. It's the golf club. And I look off to the side of the stage and there's this kid about to go up and he is just ghost white pale because these these guys are just done. they're done yeah and i and so i walk off knowing that i had failed on the set i put the mic up and i walked off the stage i walked right up to him i said and that's how it's done i just walked away <laughs> how'd he do oh they oh he did great because i bombed so, so bad you set the stage i i <laughs> ate the bullet and he did he did fine so there's he a lesson fine. there there's a lesson there all right so you went to college you started doing this all over how, how did that happen so you graduated college by the way i'm from massachusetts so i know curry very very right, well okay and then where'd you go and how did this become um, a business for you well i had i had been touring like in new england was great because there's a college every seven feet so i you know i was I was touring around during doing colleges and, you know, I had like maybe two courses as a senior and I was doing, and then I got into the club circuit. How did you get the, let's start, how did you get the gigs? Because you didn't have an agent or hers. I mean, how No, I did have an agent in Boston. When you were in college? Oh yeah. So you were one of the 21 year old, 22 year old and you had an agent. Oh yeah. So how'd you go about getting an agent? Uh, They had come out and seen one of my acts at one of the colleges and they signed me and i just started touring colleges around so then they set you up so they were making the calls to the colleges you'd show up and yeah give your i just show up and and do it and they'd give me a check and my agent would take their percentage and i mean and at this point i'm a 20 21 year old kid and i'm thinking oh my gosh this is life is just amazing you know, and it was interesting because I started the colleges for uh, I started colleges first, and I actually started stand up when I was 19 years old, um, and then I had to audition for the clubs. But at that point, Boston stand up comedy was so hot because all the com- comics were coming out of it. Yeah, uh, you needed recommendations from three headliners to the club owner just to audition. Wow! And and I got them, and uh, it was funny because I and I auditioned for the Comedy Connection, and I I. Uh, I was so nervous. I was so nervous, and uh, Oliver was the guy who ran the place. Uh, I was so nervous that I, I got into I got into Boston. I went to the front doors of the of the Comedy Connection. Uh, there were a couple people standing at like the front, you know, concierge kind of desk. Yeah. I went into the club, searched all around the club for Oliver, and at this point, and I've never met Oliver. I don't know who this guy is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, uh, crowd is coming in and stuff, and I go back out to the two people who were at the at the front there, and I go. I go, I'm looking for Oliver. And one guy comes around the, the little desk and he goes, I'm Oliver. Don't you ever walk into my club ever again without saying who you are and why you're here and addressing me. And I just went, sorry. And then I had to audition for him that night during the show. This was, our, this was before the audition. But you got the job. I got the job. Um, you know, it was a good set. And he goes, all right, you can work for me. And, and at that point, um, I, like I said, I was 19. So when, wow. I came, when I came into Boston to do the shows, I would have to like, and this was only just for a little while, I'd have to, you know, especially when I was like 20, I'd do the show and I would have to leave the club because I'm not 21 years old. Yeah. So I would come in just to do the show and then leave. Wow. Now, this, you had to grow up fast doing this, being in all these clubs, performing. You were the youngest person performing? Uh, yeah, around there. I mean, I mean, there, there were guys in their young twenties and stuff and we, you know, we were the, you know, the wannabes and the, you know, the auditions and I let, you know, help, you know, let me showcase for five minutes here and then maybe I'll go to your satellite room. So there was a bunch of us, but I I mean, I was on the younger age of that. That was during a time where, um, if one of the owners or managers came to you and and you were doing a joke that was 
kind of a, on the subject of one of the headliners, they did something similar. You were told to drop that from your ass. <laughs> oh, jeez. And if you didn't, then you weren't working that club. Wow. Or any of its satellite rooms. So, it, yeah, you grew up pretty fast. I mean, there was, a, there was definitely, how about this? There was definitely a pecking order at that point in, in comedy. I can only imagine. Well, see, it sounds like it's almost like luck that, you know, it sounds like, oh, I got lucky. I performed at Curry. The agent found me. And then he sent me around. But, no, you had to have this. I mean, how many people 19, 20, 21 were going from club to club to club getting in front of people? And I guess my question is, like, what drove you to do that? It sounds like you were different in that sense that you want to just keep getting out there. Well, I, I love doing it. It was one of those things where I, I will, that became my passion. That, that, that be, entertaining people just all of a sudden just it, it became what I wanted to do. And you had to pound the pavement. You had to keep checking with your uh, your agents every so often to see if they'd have a, a gig. You would have to expand to different clubs because your agents didn't handle the clubs. You handled your own clubs. Yeah. Now you got to go. All right. Well, and at that point, comedy. What had happened is at that point in uh, stand-up comedy it was becoming very oversaturated. There was there was rooms everywhere. I mean, I remember playing a Polynesian restaurant in Everett, Massachusetts, and there was like two people in the back sharing a poo-poo platter and I'm like performing next to a tiki statue. I'm like, this is just awful. That, that probably became a joke later that you oh, used yeah. <laughs> and so, so this is in the mid-90s, it sounds like. Mid-90s. Mid-90s. Yeah. So uh, what happened was is I had been uh, I had been doing improv on the side down in uh, in Plymouth, Massachusetts doing summer runs uh, with the group that I formed called In Stereo. And then I had done some shows with Improv Boston. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. And I, to me, what I, I, I was predicting that there was going to be a big shakedown in stand-up comedy like there's just it was too oversaturated people had seen enough of it and there was they it was it was it was going to be on the down slide for a while so is that why you went to improv so i i had actually checked out second city in chicago Mm -hmm. and i flew out there to audition and i got in uh, to their conservatory so and i remember talking to my my booker at one of the clubs and i said listen i go stand-up is going to reach a lull here in a little while and I, and I got to make sure that I improve my skills and do something else. So I went out to Chicago. I was still touring as a stand-up in the Midwest. The money wasn't as good as it was in New England. Yeah. And But I went to Second City and I went through the conservatory and then just as I was graduating, I graduated Second City and got picked up by a uh, uh, an international improv troupe called Theater Sports. And I was a main stager for theater sports for the next, I don't know, five to seven years, something like that. Now, now tell me the differences. Now, again, a lot of our listeners, they've heard of it, theater, they've heard of improv, but improv is a whole other game. I did a little bit of this in college. You know, what were the biggest changes from you going from, you know, stand-up to now doing improv, which is immediately on your feet? You can't come up with a, a you know, plan of what you're going to say. Well, it's, 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 it's on your feet. Like, it, the, the main difference is... Uh, just because you can do stand-up doesn't mean you can do improv. And just because you can do improv doesn't mean you can do stand-up. They're two yeah. separate arts. Um, and improv is ensemble. You are you are you are playing the game. You're doing the improv with mm-hmm. your castmates on stage instead of you directly trying to entertain solo a an audience. Yeah. So and and ensemble and true ensemble, you have to watch out for each other. It's not about about you and the performance. It's about give and take and listening to what your castmates are saying on stage. Because if you're not listening, I mean, if you are, I mean, talk about jokes failing during standup, <laughs> watch an improv scene fail. Oof. I mean, painful. Oh, it's, it's so painful because you can kind of pinpoint who screwed the pooch on, on the <laughs> entire scene. Um, but it, second city and in, uh, theater sports. Uh, and I did, I did a little work with, uh, at the Improv Olympic uh, Theater out in Los Angeles, um, it it really teaches you. It teaches you how to write. It teaches you how to write for your cast, yourself, your scene. It's, it's not you writing yourself a set up punchline uh, situation, as in like stand up, but it's you writing a scene. You have to set up your environment. You have to set up the characters, the relationship, what's going on, and then what makes it funny. Yeah. So, so, I mean, but so you were going, I mean, really from college, you started creating. I mean, everyone now, the key word everyone talks about is content, content, content. But right. you were creating in college from stand-up now to improv and writing. Right. You know, what were the biggest challenges in creating? I mean, you said you loved entertaining, but the creating part, did you enjoy that just as much in the writing or? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 mo- I think the most difficult part was feeding yourself uh, because now when you go into improv, I mean, I, you know, theater sports was a professional uh, troupe for us, but... I mean, you're not 
buying Porsches or anything like that. I mean, it's 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 basically you you have to work twenty four hours a day to stay professional at your own craft, and that takes a lot of work. So, if and it's have, hard to make ends meet. Yeah, I mean, if you have if you have an improv show with your troupe on a Friday, and then you have a you know two shows as a stand up in Marysville, Indiana, on Saturday, and then you have uh, you know, rehearsal for the play that you're doing on the side on Sunday. I mean, you just keep going and going and going. So, so give me a, give me an example. I mean, this was all hustling. I mean, literally from, you went from Chicago to LA mm-hmm. to Boston. Where else did you go? Uh, well, but when we went to, when my wife and I got married in Chicago and then we moved to Los Angeles yeah. because it, we, we, you know, we said to ourselves, look, if I'm going to be a, a entertainer, a comedian, I mean, I could wait in Chicago for whatever to come in but re- I mean you have to you have to go to where the craft is and everybody's in Los Angeles how long were you in LA? four or five years something okay. like that and was it even more hustling in LA because it sounds like the only way to make a profession out of the improv and stand up is you gotta hustle nonstop. oh yeah because now now you get out to LA and all the alum of Second City Chicago Second City Detroit Second City Toronto Second City Los Angeles and then the Groundlings, and then the Acme Theater, and that's just improv. Then you have actors on top of. I mean, there's. I mean, it's so. How do you stand out? Because you obviously, you, what you did, you shifted into radio and became built a great name for yourself. Right. But how, if you were still in that, how would you be standing out? Um, you, first of all, it's it's all about you know your representation. You need really good reps. But you still got to deliver. Oh yeah, you because still have to deliver. I mean, I was I was. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but you remember the show Talk Soup? Yeah. All right. There was a, there was a host there named Hal Halpern. Okay. All right. The it came down to me and Hal Halpern, and uh, what had happened to be the host of Talk to Soup? To be the host of Talk Soup. I mean, on the set of Talk Soup, hair, makeup, the whole nine yards. Wow. And um, the, how I got there is uh, they called me into the E Studios for an audition, and they had given my uh, manager at that time the, the script. But my manager only gave me two pages of a three-page script. And so I had gotten through this. And, and they tell you make it your own and, and stuff like that. So I, so I did it. And, and these guys were laughing. And they enjoyed the whole thing. They're like, so what about the third page? I'm like, what? And this is all on camera now. I'm like, what third page? And they're like, did you get the third page of script? I'm like, nope. So that's going to make this a little clunky on the thing, you know, going to the lab. And I just started making stuff up and instantaneously they said, you're coming back. And so, uh, and what had happened was it was, it was Hal and I, and Hal went and did his audition or I went and did mine first, however it was. But while I was there, um, you know, I, I was like, I was ready for, I was ready just to, I was bringing a game. And everybody was on the set. And, and that sh- during the show, when you'd watch the show, people would like, you know, you'd hear people laughing off camera. Yeah. Well, apparently, I'm going to guess that they said, don't laugh at whatever any of these two guys say, because I was cracking great jokes. And, and I'm like, nothing? Really? And there's a guy down by the floor monitor, and he's just, he's this bigger guy, and he's laughing. And he's, <laughs> I'm like, laugh, man. And so, and, and I was going off book and, or going off the script, yeah. and I was like, doing da 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 da, and I was making up all this stuff. As an improviser, I had a great set. What I wasn't really fully thinking about at that point is that a couple of rooms away, there was the staff of writers who had written that stuff on the teleprompter watching me blow off what they had just said. And I'm sure that didn't, didn't really help. bode in my favor. And and when you turned on your television, you saw Hal Helper. So, oh, wow. I mean, it was that, that was a lesson because – you know, as an improviser in Los Angeles, when they say make it your own, that's how they get around union rules to say, because you can't ask a professional improviser to improvise unless you pay that person. So yeah. they say make it your own, which is LA talk for improvise. So, you know, at that point when they said make it your own, I just turn into, you know, Captain Improv and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. but that's not what they want. They didn't want, they, and the last one they wanted, let's, let's see what you can do with the script. So what's the lesson exactly? Um, if you're on a show that has writers, make sure you at least do a chunk of their script <laughs> because they're the one – they're already paid. They're, yep. they're already on the show paid. You're not. So uh, it, so you can still be your own self but you have to be able to follow a little bit in lane. In the, in you've got to realize what's yeah. going yeah, on. exactly. So it was – I mean it was a good lesson. Were there any, any other near misses that you had or other things that you think could have put you in different directions? Uh, 
No, I, I you know what you know at the last couple last couple of years in Los Angeles, uh, I was you know my partner at the time and I were just we were, we were writing television shows and in fact we were just at this point we were just doing slug sheets for television shows pitching a couple of studios and production companies and producers and we had at one point we had six or seven television shows under option wow um now when i say under option that's la talk for uh you're not getting paid up front and and nobody will ever see this ever because there's (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars you can choose to take some money up front or and i think we did in one instance we like I mean, and we're talking four or five hundred dollars. I mean, when it, when big I say, money. When I say money up front, we're not talking a hundred grand. <laughs> we're talking four or five hundred bucks. Uh, or you can you can save everything until what they call the back end, and that's when you really see your, if it hits. You're yeah. part of the profit at that point. Like yep. you know, the guys from South Park took money up front for the first like three seasons. You wow. know, they, they, when they signed that deal, it was for three seasons. So the T-shirts and the syndicate, they saw none of that get, stuff yeah, yeah. until Trey and his partner redid their contract. Yeah, so. Right. We had we had had a bunch of shows under option, and, and and Los Angeles treated me very very well. I got where I did a lot of work with Warner Brothers, uh, did a series of national commercials for Fox, uh, Cartoon Network, uh, got great you know work as a stand up. Like I said, I did I did yeah. work at Improv Olympic West, the HBO Comedy Workshop, so it was really good. But it, there's so many layers before you get to the green light in Los Angeles. I was just like, man, this is it's, it's good, but it's getting frustrating. Um, it's the serious, it's the long game. And, it's the long game. And you, but you tried almost everything. What, what things did, what other things did you enjoy that you didn't think you would? Um, you know, we did, the, like I said, we did this run at uh, Improv Olympic West, uh, sketch comedy that my troupe had written. And, and when the troupe had moved out to Los Angeles, we did this. And it was only supposed to be like, I don't know, like a two-week run or something like that. I even forget what it was called. Um, but they kept extending it, extending it, extending it. And it ended up being like this 12-week run. And I'm like, would somebody just kill this thing? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I we had people from Hollywood come in and they were, you know, they're like, like the show. And, you know, at, at one point, you know, there's one sketch during the show that I played the banjo, which I actually do play the banjo. It, but I mean, it was like by the 10th week, you're just you're just over this. Yeah. You know, and it um and and so a, after week 12, the uh one of the directors comes backstage and he's like, they're thinking of extending it. And, we're, and all of us were like, no, <laughs> we're done. Um, but it, it, at one point, um, uh, I had been doing you know radio work in Chicago and in mm. Boston. And Was I, that just a natural extension? Yeah, I had started in radio. I mean, like back when I was in college, I was doing mornings as a freshman. So you're doing radio and stand up at the same time. Oh yeah. Okay. There was one week I was doing a, a morning show in a rim shot station, AM station outside of Chicago and I, this one weekend, um, a buddy of mine came down from Cincinnati because we were going to travel together yeah. on the circuit. I had to get up Friday morning, go do the radio show, come back. Uh, he and I got in a car, went to Wausau, Wisconsin. No, it was yeah. He came up Thursday, so uh, so so I did Thursday morning on the air, um, and then that Thursday we had to go to Wausau, Wisconsin, and back in the same night to Chicago because I had to get up and do the show on Friday. Oh, and then Friday night we were in Marysville, Indiana. Saturday night we were in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Exactly. Yep. And then Sunday I dropped him off in Cincinnati and made rehearsal for improv in Chicago on Sunday night. Wow, that was one weekend, all done in a light blue 1985 Dodge K. <laughs> Unbelievable. Dude, that's that that was that was life. So. You know, and I was doing so. I was doing radio all the way along the way, and I was, um, you know, writing for this one guy and calling and doing characters uh, at this show uh, in Los Angeles. And one of the uh, remember the Hudson Brothers Comedy Hour. Okay, yeah. One of the Hudson Brothers, Brett Hudson, had approached my partner and I um, to do an audio show because that was like the couple of years where um, uh, studios were buying up internet sites because they think you know digital was going to be the next yep, thing. Yeah. Uh, and he said, so, you know, do a, uh, do an audio show. And so we were like, all right, fine. At that point, I was also a producer, a writer and voiceover talent for an online advertising agency. So we went into those studios one night and we cut this rate, this, this show, this audio show. Uh, in fact, one of, uh, it's funny cause I, one of our, we became friends with a guy named Robbie Rist who was actually cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch years back. Oh wow. So, and very funny guy. So we all cut this, this show and I, I edited it up. And so my partner calls me up and goes, what, what do you think? And I said, 
well, what we have here is a radio show. And I said, I can send it out and test the waters and see what you think. And he goes, okay, fine. Within like four weeks with no ratings history whatsoever and no real um, history of doing a, a show, to, a radio show together, we were drafted by CBS in Sacramento. Wow. And so What made it work? The chemistry. Did you guys just have fun? Chemistry, timing. I mean, just, you know, we, we had done improv so long together yeah. that... All you have to do is just tweak it a little bit, and you can still carry that momentum on the air to a radio show. Wow! Um, and you know they they had done we did F we did it we did the show for uh, a couple of years there, and then they uh, they blew the station they blew the show up and the, and the station up, um, and so I was now I'm like now I'm in Sacramento I'm like uh oh how did how did I get up here, and I was going back down to Los Angeles doing some comedy gigs yeah. Um, and, and, you know, money started getting tight again. And so all of a sudden, a buddy of mine called me up from D.C. And he said, why don't you go into country music? And I go, why don't I just go into Aborigine Rainstick music? I go, I don't know anything about country music. And at that point, a station in Reno, Nevada was looking for a morning show. And it's, so I told my wife, I go, I'll go over and talk to him. I mean, it's only two and a half hours over the mountains. Yeah. So I went over there. We ended up doing a deal together. And... You know, the, the first couple of weeks on the air in country, I came, I remember coming home uh, and looking at my wife going, I, I will be in the country music industry for a long time. I go, because country radio and my comedy, my shtick stuff, uh, content, they just, they complement each other. How it's, so? It's, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, it's a different, you know, the way I approach humor is a little different. Um, but it's also, it's, it's not offensive. It's, it's just, it's funny. It's life. It's observatory, you know, uh, observational humor, self-deprecating humor, all these different comedic theorems. Mm -hmm. It just plays well with country. Country is like, you know, expressing yourself and, you know, uh, uh, being country music is about being different yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Well, why do you say that? Well, I mean, because it's such a giant genre. I mean, look at how huge the umbrella is in country music. Yeah. You've got rockers in country music like Brantley Gilbert, and then you've got, uh, you know, you've got more pop-sounding country artists like Kelsey Ballerini. I mean, there's there's the all the genres of music you can you can fit into country. You can find in country, but country, you'd argue that it, it's it's changed so much. I mean, if you go back twenty years ago, I mean, you almost found the perfect marriage teaming up with country as it started to change. Because wouldn't you agree? Twenty thirty years ago, it was country was kind of one sound. Yeah, and it's really yeah. well. What what do you think is true? My crap wouldn't have worked twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, no, but it's changed. I mean, now country almost any artist can fit. I mean, you look at a great example of Darius Rucker. I mean, mm -hmm. Hootie and the Blowfish, one of the best selling albums of all time. Yep. he's like, no, I'm going country, and he became a number one. Well, uh, it was amazing because I actually talked to Darius uh, at the ACMs. I had him on the show. Yeah. Uh, two weeks before his country album was his first one was released. Yeah. And uh, excuse me. Uh, and he told me, he said, uh, he goes, he goes I, I got to be honest with you, he goes, I'm really nervous about this project. And I said, why? And he goes, because I don't know if the country music industry is willing to accept me and me as a crossover. Um, you know, so, you know, country music had one African-American, Charlie Pride, you know, you know, Charlie Pride was a star. Darius was a little nervous about that. Yeah. And I said, dude, you're going to be fine. This stuff sounds great. Fast forward a year, like a year later, something like that. Um, I happened to be in Nashville and uh, got invited to Darius's first number one party. And the words he got up there and spoke just made jaws drop. He said, uh, I can remember uh, a few nights ago putting my kid to bed, kissing, or a couple months ago, kissing, uh, putting my kid to bed, kissing uh, him goodnight. And he looked up at me and he said, Dad, is there anything that I can't do because I'm black? And Darius goes, I told him, Son, you can. There's two things you can't do. Number one, be president of the United States. Number two, be a country star. And at that, and then like that month, President Obama was elected into office. He got his first number one, and he looks at the audience and he said, "Last night I kissed him goodnight, and I said, you know what, son? There's nothing you can't do because you're black." Oh, that's great. It was the most amazing. Uh, uh, speech uh, or anything that anybody's ever said it was amazing there wasn't 
a dry eye or a jaw that wasn't on the floor at, in that entire room. And you are talking the who's who of Nashville. I mean, everybody was so proud. Uh, that, I mean, they, everybody, the country music just came in and just took Darius and just elevated him, saying, yes, absolutely. You're, you're, yeah. Because you're expressing yourself as an artist. And that's what... You know, look at go back to Brantley Gilbert for a second. Brantley Gilbert, I remember being stopped in Memphis by Scott Borchetta, who's the head of his label, Brantley's label. And Scott, had, he goes, Tim, come here. He goes, I got to show you this. And this is before Brantley was Brantley. Yeah. Um, and he goes, he takes out his iPad and he goes, look at this kid. And I'm looking, and there's this kid with a baseball hat covered head up to his neck in tattoos. And there, there's like a thousand people in front of him, also covered in piercings and tattoos. And I'm like, this kid sounds amazing. He goes, he goes, I know, right? He goes, look, he goes, this, these people are listening to country music. <laughs> and and Scott signed him. I, I think he had just signed him at that point. And I mean, Brantley just took off. But for every Brantley Gilbert in that same in the same big machine yeah. family, there's Justin Moore, who is. I mean, a traditional country yeah. guy, John Party, traditional country guy. Yeah, you know, you but you've got pop, you've got traditional, you've got rocker, you've got, uh, you know, the, the balladeers, and the, I mean, there's, it, you can express yourself as an artist and 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 be be true to your own art and who you are in the country music industry, which is, I guess, why getting back to the original question, which is why I think what I do blended. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was almost like in country, you can completely reinvent yourself and it fits and you can be whoever you want in country and make it. I mean, as long as you're real to yourself, I mean, yeah. that, you know, and that's, that's the, that's the thing that a lot of artists, you know, on, on my side of the microphone and, and coming up, you know, trying to make it in the music industry and in comedy and entertainment don't, you know, they're not to realize you got to be authentic. You got to know who you are and you got to, you really got to be true to yourself. You really can't be something that you're not because, it's it's not it's not going to be sustainable to me anyway. Oh no, one hundred percent. So so you developed, you went into this country, you found this was a perfect fit, mm-hmm. bounced around the country, ended up Savannah. It's been your home, you know. Tell me about kind of that transition into Savannah and where how you were able to make a name for yourself and really, I mean, hit home down here. Um, well, we were in Cleveland. Uh, I was doing mornings. In I'm Cleveland. glad you left Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I was I was only in Cleveland for like seven months. Um, and a long time. Yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't see the sun for like half of it. I mean, it was like I'm like, would it quit snowing? And I'm from Massachusetts. I'm oh, like, yeah. stop snowing. Yeah, yeah. And so, so we were. I was, I was on my uh, on the phone with my agent and you know my business manager, and I said, all right, well, what are we looking at? And there was um, there was like three three properties that we were we were kind of talking to yeah. about taking the show there. And I, I remember a, a, a consultant, a very good dear friend of mine in the country music industry calls me up and he said, uh, Hey, he goes, I, I know you're talking to a bunch of properties, but I got this one property in Savannah, Georgia that would just, they really just want to talk to you. And I go, I go, you're so cute. <laughs> I go, no offense, but I mean, I, I've never gotten out of bed going, all right, let's check out what's going on in the Savannah radio market. Everybody let's, let's move it. <laughs> and so he's like, just talk to him. So I said, oh, fine, it's fine. I, so I set up with my agent. I talked to him. And they they seem they seem very cool, and uh, they wanted me to fly down here. And I told I told my wife about it. My wife had been down here; she loved it down oh, yeah. here before. And and she goes, "You really ought to go." I'm like, oh, "All right, fine." And and honestly, I came down here, and I was kind of looking for something not to like, um, you know, so so I could go back and 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 say this won't on, work out. Honestly, yeah. my wife go, "It's not going to work out. The yeah. station doesn't yep. face enough yep. east." Yep. Um, so, but I can't, I came back and I remember, uh, uh, we were going to bed that night and she goes, what do you think? And I go, I go, honestly, I couldn't think of, I couldn't find one thing I didn't love about the place. So I called my agent and I said, uh, put the other properties on hold. I said, we're, uh, let's try to do a deal with Savannah and it, and it worked out. And you know, that's where me and, and, and Red and, and Claire are, are so, so blessed because it, it really didn't have anything to do with what I, what I brought to the table. I mean, this it's the community that that took us in mm-hmm. and and really, uh, really just supported the show. I mean, it's it's this this town, this this city, 
Um, but you had the years of experience to come down here, and you brought in Red and Claire, and you guys became a great team. So, I mean, it was a lot of – it wasn't just kind of I came in here in the community. I mean, the community is amazing, but right. you brought some talents and well, some I mean, skill set. Well, I mean, so let's go back to what we were talking about. You know, you got to be – you know, uh, true to yourself. Yep. You got to be, you know, uh, uh, genuine and sincere. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, you got Red. Mm-hmm. Red had never been in entertainment before she hit the microphone. Yep. Uh, I was looking for a co-host at that point, and I mean, I was just driving myself crazy. And uh, Claire and I were running. She was actually a, a marketing director for a nonprofit here in yep. Savannah. And she came in because we were running her charity 5K, and she ended up staying on the air with us for like an hour and stuff. And we were talking about all sorts of things. So I remember, and I was doing this intentionally, and so I remember her leaving, and the studio door closed, and I looked at Claire, and I go, you know, that's not a bad idea. And she goes, no, it's not. And it took me three months, three months, almost every day, trying to convince management and Red that this is a good idea. And and I said, you know, I remember Red was at my house, and, and she goes, why do you think... Why do you think this is a good idea? I said, because I can see the performer in you. I can see the writer. I can see the improviser. Uh, and I know the character. And and wasn't, like, two weeks later, she was on the show, and she's one of the most, you know, she and Anne Claire are two of the most beloved personalities in this market. And it's because of the ensemble. It gets back to the improv days. Yeah. We write for each other. And not solo. So that is what, what I did in my days of improv from Second City in the Acme Theater. I picked those skill sets up, which is why my partner and I got hired by CBS four weeks after we sent the demo out. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same. You theory. all rise up. We, we take yeah. the same techniques and bring that comedy to a microphone. You're just mm-hmm. not seeing us on stage. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like you're the, you're the talent, but you're also the producer, the director, you're the, the person orchestra. I mean, you're doing it all to try oh, yeah. to get it to come together. So, but red's a great example. I think there's so many people that, you know, they're in a job. They may be, they may be stuck. They may not, you know, not loving it every day. Mm-hmm. And Claire may, I mean, red may not have had that. She may have been okay with her job, but there was this other opportunity that you saw better. Like how can people find that? Because it was almost like you finding it and sharing it with her. Um, I don't know because that never happens ever. <laughs> I mean, it just it just doesn't. But um, it, I mean, she looks, it worked out tremendously. Yeah, I mean, because well, that, that's kind of me playing casting director too. I okay. mean, I remember I had a co-host. Uh, in fact, yeah, it was just in fact the reason I was looking for a co-host at that point is because my other co-host, Monolly, had married a, rain, a U.S. Ranger, okay. and they moved. Uh, they they were restationed. So, but I remember Monolly in the conference room interviewing for the rock station. And she has two sleeves of tattoos yeah, yeah, yeah. and all nine yards. And I told Claire, I'm like, she would be amazing on the country station. And, and she, I mean, picked it up. And so, so, I mean, it's, so you can see how, I guess it's the people need to be open to, you saw the talent in red and her, you saw these opportunities mm-hmm. and you got to be open to it. So it's almost like trying new things. She went on the radio to promote something else and you were like, yes, that's it. Yes. And then being open to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, she had, there, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good leap of faith. I mean, <laughs> but you know, you can see, you can see the entertainment bug and when it's, when it's in somebody, yep. and when it's bitten somebody, I mean, you know, you're no different here. Yeah. It's a performance. I mean, you know, you come to a bananas show. Yeah. And it's like you. It's, it's like you've said a million times. You come to a banana show and there's a baseball game in the background. A game I mean, may break you, out. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> but I mean, it, you had and and for those who who don't know, I mean, I did. I announced a game here at Grayson uh, over the summer, just four to five hours of my life. And let me tell you something: <laughs> what you do and how this stuff run. There are and whoever is listening to this, I assure you. You have not the slightest clue as to the amount of moving pieces that are going on behind the scenes with every pitch, every swing, every dancing first base coach. I mean, and 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 you're the you're you're the director of all that. I mean, you're on the microphone. You're on the microphone. The walkie talkies. Just like I am in my studio, yeah. this is your your studio happens to be outside. In front of yeah, Mine you're is, in front of even more people. I'm just in front of people live to an extent. You're, you're, we're both live. Well, yeah, we're both live, and we're both in front of you know hundreds, thousands. hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. You just see them. You just see them. You know, on nightly bases. You know, I I see yeah. mine. You know, but but I, what I want to touch on this was like yes, we both do similar things. But you know, I have 25 to 30 games. You're doing it every 
day here. And right. I guess the biggest thing I want to talk about is is the creating these ideas and the content. And obviously, you had the experience of improv, and you're going from show to show every single day. Right. But how do you come up with ideas every single day? I mean, I was listening today. I was laughing hysterically again. And I think your listeners let go every day, love the music, but they laugh at you guys. How do you come up with content every day? Uh, That's good. Yeah. It's, you you got to... You got to recognize. Well, it gets back to how I used to write stand up. Yeah. First of all, I never told, you know, a lot of stand ups used to buy and sell their own jokes, uh, you know, to other, you know, com- comedians and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. I never, and people ask me, why don't you buy, buy material? I said, because I, I, I didn't write it. I don't believe in it. So if I don't think it's funny, I can't sell it to an audience. Mm-hmm. So every day we gather and we start talking. Communication, just brainstorming, just talking, yeah. just just talking, mm-hmm. and all I need is a sentence that goes to improv. Mm-hmm. All I need is a sentence. Don't worry about it. I got the rest mm-hmm. of it. And and you know, and Claire and Claire and Red are really good at that too because they'll they'll literally be seven seconds of a song left, and we we go all right, we're going to go in with this. But they're talking about something, and I catch it out of the corner of my eye and my ear, and I, I can feel the energy. Not that what we're not, not that what we're Feel about the passion to do. of what they're talking right. about. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. passion in that particular moment trumps what we're about to do. So you go into it. So I go, ditch that, we're going with this, and the microphones are literally up at that so point. So how much is improv that you do in a given day? Oh my God. Uh, 85 to 90%. So you'll have a little framework. Nine, but, 95%. So you'll have a framework a little bit, but mostly it's just you guys going off what you guys are talking about. It's just yeah, being around I mean, people that you enjoy being around. Yeah, and just it, talking. It, it's 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 chemistry. It's supporting each other. Yeah, supporting your ensemble. Yeah, I mean, you know, like uh, there there are you have your talk about of like you know, all right, every, I've, if I see something come across the internet, the news, and something else, if I see something like three or four times, I'll be like, all right, we we need to talk about this. We yeah. need to talk about that. Yeah. But you know, and and yes, we do Nashville news and entertainment. Yeah, uh, you know, but, but other than that, you just roll. Like obviously today about the uh, the house and moving and getting ready to move. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know there there are there are certain the, the way that you know a lot of improv uh, improv comedy is taught. One theorem is is that you take and Seinfeld was a perfect example of this. Seinfeld mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't Seinfeld it was a, an ensemble. Yeah. Seinfeld was just directing this circus, yes. um, but he did he. He made created the whole show off of one specific comedic theorem, which is you take the main storyline and downplay it and take a minute detail and blow it up to proportions unknown. And it, if you think about it, it's it's that's exactly what you know, that's the one of the ways we operate. Well, on that's what great comedy is. Yeah. So you take Cause that minor detail might be that minor detail becomes the entire thing and that you focus on the whole time. And we, everybody relates to it. I mean, and, and that's, again, that's one, it's like when you stop someone in their tracks, like they say something that's kind of ridiculous and right. they keep moving, you go back to that and continue focusing. Yeah. On and then, it, then yeah. so like, you know, the other day I, I came in and, um, I had said something like uh, the night before I got up from the office and I went into the kitchen. Has anybody ever done this? I, I get up and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go into the kitchen. And by the time you get to the, ki- the, the kitchen, you have gone through a vortex of amnesia and you cannot possibly figure out why you went into the kitchen. Yep. But the thing is you won't leave the kitchen. You'll still stand there whacking your brains <laughs> trying to figure out why you're standing in the middle of this kitchen at, to the point where your wife comes in and goes, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she looks and she's like, I'm so glad I married you and walks right out. I mean – Utter confusion. It's, but it's a little – it's yeah. so little. But everybody's done it. <laughs> I mean and that's – you know, traits like that. That's, that's what we put into the show. We bring callbacks in. And you know what? I'll tell you this much. You know, our show is about our listeners and the callers. I mean, the callers, and I, I've told the girls this a million times, the callers are always going to be way funnier than we can ever be. Yeah. Because they just, I mean, the callers get it. They love, And that's, that's what the whole show is about. It's bringing everyone together. It's bringing everyone together. Yeah. And again, why, why, why my particular shtick fits uh, country radio is because – it's an environment where people want to call up and play and they want to talk and they want to be in on the joke and they want to yeah. make a joke. And then, you know, and then you get, they want to be a part of it. They yeah. want to be a part of it. And then that's where the show really gets to be a part of the community, especially, I mean, you know, we live in military central here yeah. and 
you know, as you guys are so awesome here to, to the men and women of the military, I mean, we try to support everything the military it. does. Um, so what happens on the show ultimately is, is a long game roller coaster. We are, we, we are silly. We're funny. We're, we're, uh, supportive. Uh, you know, there's sad moments. There's, I mean, it's, it's everything. And it's just, it's a matter of four hours on level 10 every day. Full energy. Full energy. I mean, it's like, it's when you... And I come in there early some mornings and you still have it. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you, you know, when you get done with a game here, you go home. Like I announced that game during the summer. I didn't go to bed until like 1230 because I was so amped up by, you know, there's so much stuff going on. And that's, and that's the way the, the radio show is. I mean, you, you know, you, you put everything in overdrive or we try to every day for four and a half hours and then shut the mics down. Yeah. And then, you know, that's, you know, and, and, and you know what the same thing is with the syndicated countdown show. Yeah. I mean, that show gets done in four different cities. Yeah. In fact, it's one, amazing. two, yeah, four different, get yeah. locked in New York, written in Washington, uh, recorded in Savannah and produced in Seattle and then sent back to New York Wow. every single week. Yeah. That's so amazing. It's but it's cool. What are some of the best ideas that have worked on air? Some of the best things that gained the most traction? I mean, are there things that stand out the last few years that you just started talking about, but it went nuts? Uh, and also the worst ones are the ones that you like. People are like, what are you guys doing? Well, there is a time I accidentally uh, uh, knocked the station off the air in, in Sacramento with a set of golf clubs. Um, How did that happen? We were, t- we were, we were well, pretty much, pretty much everybody's at the finish line of this story. But there was, <laughs> we had done a deal with this golf pro in, in Sacramento. He was giving us lessons and stuff. And I was in demonstrating the swing that he had just taught us. Yeah. Okay, hindsight being twenty twenty, maybe I should not have swung the golf club in the studio. Um, because for the next three minutes, all you heard was... So you swung and just smashed into everything? I hit something. <laughs> I hit some. Uh, I hit Did you something. still have your job after that? Yeah, but my PD was not really pleased with me on that one. Um, oh, neither, neither was the engineer. Come to think of it, um, th- so that one was that one didn't work that well. That one didn't work that well. Um, in in New England, I will always be remembered as first of all the guy whose wife wouldn't let him have a chainsaw because I hit my house with my snowblower. Um, and I'm also the guy who called Carrie Underwood fat at the ACMs. Oh, wow. Um, now this was unintentional. So I, I was at the ACMs. And You're just upset a lot of listeners right now. No, I, well, well, I, she's, she's the one who kept bringing it back for the, I mean, and she's very, we're, we're totally cool with it. She was, <laughs> she would just always give me crap about it every time she'd be on the show. So she said she was. I was about to interview her, and I really wanted to just you know come in and just blow Carrie Underwood away, just really impressing yeah, yeah. the crap out of her. So I wanted to give her an introduction. So I started. Uh, I was with the station Providence at the time, and I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, the next uh, the next country megastar who just sat down is absolutely enormous, Carrie Underwood. And she goes, <laughs> did you just call me enormous? And I'm like, no, I didn't, I did. But she's like, wow, way to make a girl feel good about herself. She's like, I think I'll go exercise now. <laughs> and so, and she was, I mean, it was, she was. Okay, crazy. now I get it. You didn't actually call her No, fat. I did not you actually call her fat. <laughs> But the thing is, is that for the next two years, every time she would come on the show, her people would remind her that I was the guy that called Call her enormous. enormous. So, she kept bringing it up. Well, one time I, I was at the CMAs uh, in, in Nashville and I had to, and I was actually at the CMAs, but my seats were so high up that I could actually see, uh, on you know the front of the stage, and I could also see behind the stage. Okay. And this was the year that Carrie Underwood wore this gigantic hoop skirt. You're still uh, using big words, you know. Right yeah, now. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah all right. All right. So, um, big hoop skirt, and so uh, and she didn't really move around because there was like videos on it and stuff like that oh, that they were, they were ch- so and so she finished her number and they went to commercial, and so uh, the the curtains closed behind her, and as soon as the curtains closed and and the lights went dark, she went down, scooped up her skirt yeah. and then just walked off stage so she was on the show so i thought i'd bring that up because I, you know and, and again some of these ideas in here uh, bouncing <laughs> around in my head look you know look good in the in the cerebral paper but when it comes out of my mouth it comes wrong so i said you were wearing this gigantic hoop skirt uh last night at the cma she's like you calling me fat again i'm like <laughs> no i'm not calling you fat you said i didn't fit into my dress and i'm like no i didn't so for, so you guys have that connection now. Yeah. For, for, for the next two to three years, every time she'd be on the show, uh, she would bring that up. I uh, love it. Love it. So. All right. So a lot of people setting up 
personal brands now. You see this all over people trying to mm-hmm. make their put their name out there. You've done an unbelievable job. You know, what advice would you give to someone trying to start a personal brand? Stay focused and simple. How don't, so? Don't don't overthink what you're trying to develop. It's not that difficult. Um, the more complex you make it, ultimately, the more confusing you're. The more confusing you are to who you're trying to get this to. So, you know, the Tim Leary brand is the 2020 Country Countdown, the Morning Showgram, the Showgram Live on Facebook. I mean, it's got these components, but it all comes under, you know. Uh, you know, the Tim Leary brand. Now, mm-hmm. let's face it, without Bob, you know, the Tim Leary brand will be, you know, somewhere else. But I mean, I I have to support the Bob brand. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Bob 106.9 is its own thing and brand. And Tim Leary is just a, a the Tim Leary brand is a, a part of that brand. Mm-hmm. So my job is to support that. But if you're developing your own brand, you know, entertainment uh, or, or other, you know, industries, you know, what are you trying to get to your to whoever you're trying to get it to? In my case, I'm trying to get my entertainment brand to listeners and viewers and you know audiences. Um, well, then don't overcomplicate it. It's okay. This is be be very straightforward. This is this is what you get if you if you're looking at the Savannah Bananas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, it's you you keep this is it, what we do. You keep it simple and focused. Don't lose track of the focus. You guys, I mean, you guys do. You know, things that are, you know, being different is, yeah. is what, what you, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to a man in a yellow tuxedo and I'm a guy with a multicolored mohawk. <laughs> so, you know, you, you said, you know, do things different, be unusual. Mm-hmm. That, that's that been your message from day one. Yeah. And you've never. And that's, but that's who I am. I guess what I'm referring to is anyone else there that's trying to get themselves out there and try to maybe leave a job or become a part of something or a business owner that wants their business to stand out. What I'm hearing from you is keep it simple, but also. I mean, stay true to yourself. You didn't know you were country until you got into it. Right. But once you got into it, you're like, this is me. And I'm going to stay kind of on this because it fits my brand. It's right. Like, well, and, yeah. and, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it is entertainment. It is radio. I mean, if, if, if down the line, you know, I, uh, I end up in something that's other than country, I'll, that's okay. Yeah. I, I can't predict the future. You know, the man upstairs knows what's going yeah. on, but not me. Um, I, my job and my team's job is to make sure that this fits in, 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 a brand that I mean, here's the example. Uh, a couple years back, uh, I had a PD from a uh, what they call a major market, which is like top twenty. What's a PD? A program director. Okay. Of a radio station, called me up. Said uh, I was. I think I was coming out of one contract, going into another, and he says, "Hey, I want you to come out and do mornings for me." I go, okay, and and we had a great conversation, <laughs> but it was for a rock station. It, and I go, and, and you know, we're about a half hour into the conversation. I go, you realize that I don't fit what you're looking for. He goes, oh yeah, absolutely. So, and, but we kept talking. <laughs> but I, but I, I mean, I know that that's not going to be the optimum place for my brand. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so you got to be honest. Yeah. It's you know, was it was it an opportunity? Sure, but you know what. You got to That's not what my brand is about. You know what your brand. And and speaking of your brand, I think one thing I don't know how much you've thought about this, but your laugh is unbelievably contagious. Yeah. And and now you've probably heard about. Oh, you're going to say I, my laugh's terrible, but no, I've heard about my laugh for years. Yeah, and so but it, it's just it's always been that way. And or, I mean, do you try to notice it? I mean, because when you're laughing on air, it's hard to listen to it and not laugh. It's an unbelievable contagious laugh. People for years have asked me, "Is that your real laugh?" And I'm like, "Yeah, this this is my, <laughs> this is it. That's my real laugh." You know, because when I think something's funny, I love, I, I mean, I love laughing. But it's a huge laughter. It's a big laugh. Um, it, you know, that's part of your brand. I, yeah, it's because it's, 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 it's who I am. You know, years ago when we used to go see each other's, you know, comedy shows and, you know, yeah. we'd go support a buddy at, a, at an improv show or whatever. And, you know, you go out and you see him, but you wouldn't see him after the show. So you'd ah, I'll call him tomorrow. So, you, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd hook up for a beer or something the, yeah. you know, the next weekend ago. And uh, they'd go, hey, thanks for coming out to the show last week. I didn't talk to you. I heard you laughing in the back. I mean, <laughs> that's you, impressive. You can pick it up, but, and, but that's another thing that's you. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like that laugh's been you for many years. Now you've done a mohawk that's now becoming you, right? But that laugh's you, right? And I mean, that makes you stand out. Yeah, it's it's uh, because I 
you know, people, uh, I mean, so many times people will come up to you and go, hey, do your radio voice. I, I don't have one. No, this, this is your this radio. This is it. This is, this is it. Yeah. Um, you know, and the laugh is your laugh. The laugh is, is, the laugh is my laugh. Um, Has and, anyone asked to hear that laugh as like their alarm clock in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was messing around with No, no. Somebody did. Gosh, somebody. Uh, You'd wake up laughing. This was just, a, this was just, a, it wasn't too, too long ago. It was like a year or so. No, it's okay. This is that. Somebody, somebody called up and they said, you know what? I, I know when you're laughing, I got to get out of bed or, or something like that. Okay, but they, perfect. But they basically set their alarm to like when we would do a break on the air. Yeah. So like, we, you know, if we do a break at like 645, their, their alarm clock went off because they knew they were going to hear a laugh. So, you know, they didn't have to hit the snooze button that many times or something like that. Okay. But yeah, somebody had actually, and if you guys, if you haven't heard his laugh, you got to tune into his show. It's, it's but tomorrow. It's, we're reading mammoth on the air. Yeah. So <laughs> there'll be some laughter. There'll be there. No laughter. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's some of the best advice you've ever received? You've been in this industry for so long. It could be from parents and the best advice you've ever received. Uh, man, that's a good question. Um, just don't quit. Um, don't, you know, if, if this is what you want to do, just, uh, it, it will be very, very difficult, but, uh, just keep at it, keep at it and, and don't quit. There was, I mean, I remember a, a time that, uh, I was between gigs and shows. This was in Sacramento mm-hmm. when they blew the, when they blew the show up. It was a long, and I, and I was going back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, to, from LA to Sacramento, but not making enough for, okay, here's a mortgage, here's more, you know, yeah. and then, you know money was getting tight and there were flyouts canceled all over the place. And there was a big paradigm shift in radio at that point. And it was getting pretty bleak. And, you know, and it's hard after a certain amount of time not to get down on yourself going, God, this is, this is, this isn't working. Um, and I remember somebody had uh, mailed me a copy of a book called uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Yeah, Spencer Johnson. And, and, and I, I opened this up and I look at my wife and I'm like, what the heck is this? And she goes, oh, that's a, a book about, how you want to do one thing in life, but it doesn't work out. So you got to shift your priorities and do something else in life. And you know, that type, but I had received this advice about not quitting and keeping at it and it, it'll pay off someday. So I said, fine, I only, let me put it in the, uh, let me put it in the shelf. So I opened the trash and I threw it out. <laughs> so I said, I'm not quitting. Yeah. And it, it, the book's not exactly about that, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you never read it, anyways. But. I never read it, um, but no, I recycled it. Too. Um, <laughs> but you stayed true to not quitting and what came going through it. Yeah, I mean, and that was the top one of the toughest points. It it was it was very tough. I mean, and you know, we were a, a fairly young married couple. I mean, and you know, when you're when you're unemployed and stuff like that, and things get tight, like I mean, it puts strains on you know marriage. It, it just naturally does. I yeah. mean, and and my wife. Karen has been with me. She, in fact, she used to sneak into the comedy clubs with me to watch my sets, and then we both have to leave. That's how long this chick has been with me. Um, and she's heard every joke in the book from you. Every joke, <laughs> and, she, and people come up there and they go, "God, your house must be so much fun." And she's like, "No, he's a dud." And he get, she's like, "He he gives away all the jokes, and he comes home and he sleeps on a lounge chair, which is pretty much that's not true. wrong." Oh, um, but she, I mean. Because I've had the support with Karen, my wife, and my kids, and we we're very blessed to have two really great kids. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't ask for more than that. I mean, their advice is, you know, make sure, you know, in entertainment, you just get get a good rep. I mean, yeah, you gotta that's make what you sure, mentioned, yeah. You got to make you gotta sure. You got to be working with good people. Good good people who have your interests, your interests in mind. Not their own. Um, and, you know, the, be- the best advice I, I try to give people who come who are coming up to the you know ranks and radio or whatever, or whatever is in entertainment you got to look at it like this and this this one came you know as as we're driving all over you know the states of the midwest touring for that next mm-hmm. you know 100 buck show yeah um it in entertainment you're you're your own business and you're the product yeah and you got to realize somebody's got to be making money off of you for you to make money and if they're not making money, you're not making money. And if you're not making money, you ain't eating. So you're going to make your product so good you got, that other people yeah. make money off it. You're the product. Yeah. You're, you're it. Yeah. This is – this is you talk about the brand and everything. That's the that's So how the do you product. make your product so good? You got to keep – you got to – I mean you got to keep at it. You got to love it. I mean yeah. you got you to gotta love what you do. I mean, like you're you're a dude. Your entire staff uh, yeah. here. I mean, you can tell that it's an office full of people that 
really, really love what they do and they love coming. I've, I've always said in cast, uh, you know, stage and radio and all that sort of stuff. If you come, if you come into work and your work's a job, you're in trouble. Then it's time to leave. Yeah. I mean, and I've never belabored any castmate that has ever said, I've, I've got to move on. I've got to go do this. I would rather have them leave a show, leave a cast, mm-hmm. leave whatever, um, and have them be happy than try to keep them somewhere to be miserable. And it's great because, you know, I turn on the TV now and, you know, I'm watching TV shows or Netflix or commercials and, and you'd be like, oh, there's so-and-so. Oh, my gosh, there's so-and-so. And you've worked with these, you know, these, these guys and, and you gals. see them make it. And you see them, you know, oh, Melanie got another national commercial. That's great. Oh, there's Irene. She's on this, you know, TV show. And every now and then for the from the past 20 years, you'll have somebody find you on social media go, hey, dude, let's see what you're in Savannah, Georgia doing radio. That's great. You're, you, yeah. know, uh, you know, you won this award. That's fantastic. And it's, it's just really cool to, really cool to see the, the, the people who really, 20 years later, there are still your, your friends. You, you, you've lost contact with them, but you know, you're, they're still friends. Yeah. And they're um, still in it because they love it. still in it. Yeah. So you, you just got to make sure that when you wake up and you got, I'm going here to do this and I'm trying to develop, just make sure that you, you can stay true to yourself by knowing that you love what you're doing. Yeah, and you're into it. Now, I, I, you mentioned your two kids. What would be the best advice you would give them? Because not just someone that's Don't go in into entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, it was funny because my daughter, uh, she was working with the Savannah Children's Choir for a while and she's doing a, another uh, co-op choir uh, right now. And she loves performing. And, you know, I, we went to this, we went to the, uh, the Savannah Children's Choir for her first performance. And, man, she hit that stage. I'm like, oh, crap. She had it. Oh, crap. I can see the, the performers that I've seen in Monoly and, and yeah. Red and all these other performers, guys and gals, over the 20 years. I'm like, oh, boy. My wife goes, what? I'm like, she's got it. I can see it. I can see it right there. Yeah. And, and you're trained to see it. I'm trained to see it. And so she finished the performance and, you know, you got to buy her flowers. <laughs> and that night, and she loves drawing too. So she's got all this artwork all over. And she's actually very, very talented. Creative, yeah. And a totally creative. Yeah. Totally creative kid. And I remember I kissed her goodnight one night and I, and I walk across her room and I'm going to shut the light off. And I shut it off and she goes, Daddy? And I go, I go what, Shaughnessy? And she goes, does this mean I'm an artist? And I had my back to her and I'm like, Yes, that means you're an artist now. She's like, yay. And you can, I could feel happiness the on my shoulders. Yeah. I could feel the energy coming off her. She was beaming. I didn't even have to look at her, and I know she was smiling. Wow. What I really wanted to do was turn the light on, turn around, and go, no. What you have to do is do four years of auditions where everybody tells you you're horrible. Managers reject you. You can't get a role. You can't get a callback. You get one little performance, and you think it's great because you get 50 bucks, and you feed yourself on one chicken for an entire week. Then you're an artist. <laughs> but how do you – no, seriously. How do you prepare – her for the adversity and challenge because as a parent, as a father, you don't want her to get burned. But how do you prepare someone for it? Because that's how they can be successful. I haven't the slightest, I, dude. I, I, I'm winging it at this point. I mean, I just, you know, I, uh, I say, hey, you, you really got to audition. You got to, you know, you got to practice yeah. and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, she went through an audition recently, and and I, I get, oh god, I got to give it to this little chick. She, it was her very, very, very first audition, and. Uh, and she went in there by herself, and she did her best. And you know, she she didn't get what she was going out for. And but I told her um, all the way up to that audition, I said, "It's okay. Dad has done thousands of auditions and not gotten the parts." Yeah. I said, "So you have to realize if you don't get what you want in an audition, it's perfectly fine." Because it's going to happen more times than not. And I want to tell you that up front as one performer <laughs> to another. I said, so just keep that in your mind. Yeah. And she didn't get She was, you know, was she disappointed? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean, all of everyone's as an artist, yeah. you know, yeah. when you don't, rejection sucks on any level. <laughs> yeah. So, but she, she, she's like, it's okay. And, and I'm like, I, I'm proud of that. The fact that she's going to be willing to understand that she may be rejected again. Yeah, and again. She, yeah. she didn't sit there. She didn't pout. She didn't, she, you know, she was like, ah, oh, she was, she was bummed. She didn't get it. But I mean, you know, that's impressive. And then she just, she bopped along and she did, you know, she's 
she was like, okay. And then she went on with her day. Well, you may have your hands full over the next oh, few I, No, no, no. I know. I, what is it? Uh, Claire's, Claire has said that uh, she doesn't know how, how my daughter is going to turn out. She said she's somewhere going to be – she's somewhere between uh, Madame Curie and Courtney Love. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, jeez. Unbelievable. Um, and then, you know, my son is – my son's the direct opposite. He is – he is – He's math guy and yeah. um, he's Boy Scout. Oh, he's yeah. Yeah, one of the most uh, one of the most decorated uh, Arrow Light Scouts I've, I've Unbelievable. ever seen. So I mean, you know, another talent. But then again, that's what maybe he's the best at, or he wants to be into. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what my wife and I have always focused on is is what what they get excited about. You know, with you know with kids. I mean, you go through stuff like every. You know, I can I, I know where the jujitsu costumes are. I know where the flute is. <laughs> yep. and I know where all that sort of stuff. So, but when they see, when you see something, you know, because they're a little older now, they're eleven and uh, ten and eleven. Um, when you see all of a sudden they get really passionate about something, mm-hmm. the passion is what you want to is what you want to nurture. Yeah, it doesn't matter what they're doing; they're showing passion mm-hmm. about something because nurturing that passion at this age, to me, I will find out in a few years. Yeah. But nurturing that passion teaches them that when they get older and they become passionate about something, that's when they can start building a brand. Pursue it. Yeah. Yep. That's how, that's how you do it. All right. Beautiful. We're going to go to the ninth inning right now. All right. Oh it's it's All clutch right. time. Some clutch yellow time. tux questions. All you right. need to answer quickly. All right. Hold on. I get my water. All right. Get your water. All right. Ninth inning here on Find Your Yellow Tux. You ready? I'm ready. Go for it. All right. Win the Masters or win the Daytona 500? Masters. All right. Dropped in a pit of scorpions or a pit of snakes? Oh, scorpions. Uh, hot pockets for life or ramen noodles for life? Oh, can I do both? Uh, uh, I'll do ramen noodles. Ramen noodles. All right. One thing you can't live without? A heartbeat. <laughs> That's a great answer. Great answer. All right. One song you could listen to every day for the rest of your life? Oh, my God. You're asking a DJ this? Um, <laughs> this is tough. Uh, right now, I, oh, my gosh. I don't know. Uh Green grass and high tide. Oh, country roads, John Denver. I can I can listen to that forever. All right. Uh, the grossest thing that's ever happened to you. You know that's not for this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrity crush. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, when I was growing up, there was a there's a TV show in the '80s called The Scarecrow, Mrs. King. I loved Kate Jackson. Okay. I don't know. Going old school. No, I don't know anyone who knows who that is. But no. Uh, nowadays, I I do. I don't know if I have one off the top of my head. I'd have to. Uh, Ninth inning. Uh, Mina Kulis or whatever her name is. <laughs> you butchered her name, but that's cool. I just, I just pulled over. That's the first person I could think of. All right, last one here. If you could invest all in on one thing or one business or one thing, what would you invest in? Uh, see, the, the, the hack answer would be myself. Uh, <laughs> the second hack answer would be you. Uh, <laughs> I would say Google. Google. Invest in Google. All right. Uh, you passed the ninth inning. I Thank think we're going to be okay. All right. Uh, Tim, how can people connect with you? Uh, you can find me, uh, Tim Leary in the Morning Showgram, on Facebook. You can listen every single morning uh, to Bob1069 in Savannah. If you're not in the low country or coastal empire here, you can get the free Bob1069 app in the uh, Google Store, the uh, iTunes Store. It's absolutely free. Just type in Bob1069, and uh, you can find me. I'm typically on Facebook. Um, uh, I've been known to, I, I'm on Twitter, too, but... Uh, Best way to get a hold of me is Facebook and then listen to the show. Excellent. And you guys check it out, not just for the laugh. It's it's a hilarious show, a lot of fun. So thanks for being with us today. It was a lot of fun. Love it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Good stuff. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Yellow Tux podcast. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and shoot me a note at findyouryellowtux.com. Next week, excited to have the founder of South Magazine, Michael Brooks, in the house. It is an amazing interview. You don't want to miss it. So until then, stop standing still. Start standing out.